Hi, everybody. Welcome to the May 31st, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Patricia Calhoun, filling in for Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Donald Trump coming to Colorado for the first time since he was elected president. On my left, showing, well, probably right on my left, Susan Green from the Colorado Independent. What do you think about Trump showing up? I just want to say I feel so good here in the Patty Calhoun seat, so thanks. Um, I feel that uh, he had a lot, it took a lot of guts for him to show up in Colorado Springs because the last time he was there he got um, saved by the fire department when he was stuck in an elevator and had the nerve to throw the fire officials under the bus for doing so. I think it's also noteworthy, as we discussed, that no Republicans really showed up for his visit. David Copel, were you there? I was not, um, but it was a uh, uh, for the president a, a pretty grown-up day. The, the speech was generally apolitical, and he shook hands with all 989 graduates. So that was a nice thing to do. Eric Sonderman, political pundit, in much demand right now. <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, impressed that he was able to overcome his heel spurs uh, in order to make it to the Air Force Academy. Uh, maybe those have healed in the intervening uh, 20 years. I think it was wise of him to pick a speech this year. They rotate between the military academies. I'm glad it was not the U.S. Naval Academy where there is actually stuff named after John McCain and John McCain's father and grandfather, and obviously that would have all had to be completely hidden out of sight for the president's uh, fragile ego. And Krista Kaper, Denver Post columnist and radio talk show. Finish it up for us. What did you think of his visit? You know, it was a great, a great venue for a Republican president. Um, you're going to have a friendly crowd with the Air Force. I would like to say that the concept of a space force, while possibly necessary, it's a little cheesy, a little 1980s, if you ask me. Well, we're kind of in the 1980s when we're dealing with Trump. But right now, we're just four days away from the May, the July, sorry, we're four days away from the June 7th election <coughs> runoff. June. The final, what? June 4th. Okay, we can't start that one over. Okay, we're just five days, four days away from the June 4th election runoff. The final mayoral debate between Michael Hancock and Jamie Gillis brought up some familiar issues and some unfamiliar familiar issues, including sex harassment and homelessness. We've only got four days. We were having a wild discussion of this race right before the cameras started rolling, which might account for why I'm a little hyped up here. Yeah. Susan, what do you think is going to happen? Wow. So what I think is going to happen is we're going to have uh, several more pretty nasty, ugly days. Um, I think part of what the viewers are seeing and you being a little flustered is that our phones are ringing and our texts are uh, buzzing with all sorts of uh, really mean and nasty, ugly, unverifiable rumors, um, I think mostly from the Hancock campaign um, about either Jamie Gillis or people who support Jamie Gillis. And um, I've covered politics for about 30 years, and I've seen ugly, but I haven't seen ugly at this level in a city. Um, And this is getting to a point Uh, where I think uh, sometimes it's hard for us media folks to see outside our little bubble, but uh, I think some of the negative ads that that campaign or their proxies are airing um, just show a level of desperation and meanness on the part of this mayor that is a real turnoff in the city. Um, 
John Hickenlooper had it right about this city and this state that we don't really like that kind of uh, campaigning here. We are not Chicago, and what we are seeing is Chicago from the Hancock campaign. David Koppel, as a lifelong resident <laughs> of this city and this area, what do you think about what we're seeing? No, I'd, I'd agree with Susan. This this is the sleaziest, most racist campaign in Denver mayoral history, uh, going back at least for 50 or, or, or 60 years. In, in the debates, you know, it's kind of sad with all the kind of somewhat petty personal attacks on each other, uh, not, much, not much new to say. Um, and it, as it turns out, they both skip debates, you know, that they don't want to go to like the vast majority of candidates do. So there's not much difference in that. With Hancock, people know his level of competence and either as mayor, and they're either satisfied with it or not. Presumably the ones who travel through DIA or drive in the city might be on the less satisfied side. With Gillis, is she going to be a competent replacement? You don't really know, and she hasn't really solidly made the sale on, on convincing people that she would be, but I think some folks are going to be willing to take a chance, and the number who are willing to take that chance um, increases because of the uh, really despicable nature of the last few weeks of uh, the incumbent mayor's campaign. Eric, you've certainly watched your share of campaigns and commented on this one. Where do you think we're going in the next four days? It has certainly been scorched earth on the part of the Hancock campaign. Um, I flash back to previous mayoral races, including a few that I was a part of. And yes, Federico Pena, way back in 83, dislodged an incumbent. But that was a campaign of inspiration, hope, generational change. It had an ethnic component. Uh, and the incumbent in that case didn't even make it to the runoff. Uh, in 95, I was uh, you know, a key consultant to Mary DeGroat. That was a rough campaign between Mary DeGroat and Wellington Webb. But there was never an allegation uh, there were plenty of allegations of ethical improprieties vis-a-vis -vis Webb and his administration, but never anything about his personal conduct. There was never an inference about his personal conduct or any of that. And there was also a, there wasn't a sense in that race that there is now that somehow both of these candidates are wanting and the city's in bad shape if either of them got elected. And then Susan somewhat stole my thunder vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, John Hickenlooper got elected mayor twice and governor of this state twice and now is running around all kinds of parts of the U.S. And his, half of his appeal was his pledge never to run a negative ad. Well, you know, Michael Hancock has proven himself to be the un-John Hickenlooper in that regard. It is not a mark of confidence for an incumbent mayor this close to an election not to be talking about a third term, not to be talking about vision, not to be talking about any of that, but just going scorched earth in ads that at least three TV stations have fact-checked very harshly. But, you know, politics is politics, and it's not beanbag. And they figure for every person who watches a fact-check that says the ad is not totally accurate, a hundred people are just watching the ad and not to fact-check. And they're just going to play this, the cards out to the finish line. Krista, ugliest campaign in recent memory? In recent memory. And, you know, Denver is such a beautiful city. As a, as a Denver native, I, I hate to see it become such a... It's sort of sullied, to use an old-fashioned word, by this campaign. I mean, whether it's resurrecting old tweets, nasty allegations, it's just... It's, 
um, it's disgusting. And I don't know if it's a question of the personalities involved or if it's the era that we're involved in. I mean, our, the last election, the presidential level was, was pretty ugly. Um, or could it be that there is a lack of unity within the Democratic Party? I think there are a lot of symptoms uh, that need a cure. In fact, I, I don't want to see uh, John Hickenlooper run for president. I want to see him run for mayor of Denver. <laughs> well, he could have gone for that third term. All right, we're going to go around once more on this one. Let's have predictions. So at the 7 o'clock is the deadline on June 4th to vote. Don't mail it in now, but you can deliver it. You can go to a voting center if you're not if you don't have your ballot. Susan, at the end of the day, and let's assume Denver elections counts a little faster, at the end of the day, who's going to be the new mayor and by what percentage? Wow. I may regret this. I always do. But I would say Gillis by six points. David? I'm similar. I'd say Gillis will win with 54%. Eric? I wouldn't lose any sleep for sure if, if Susan and David were right. I think that there are a lot of Denverites and a lot of voters generally go with the known instead of the unknown. Even if the known is damaged goods, I think Hancock probably ekes it out. Just the throw weight of that campaign, the amount of money that they have raised, politics probably triumphs, unfortunate, unfortunately here. The risk for Hancock is that almost that voters out there who really don't like either candidate, there have been studies recently about how strong people who said, I can't stand either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton broke for Trump. And I think those voters who are less than enamored with either candidate may well break for Gillis. But I'll put my money on Hancock. Okay, and Krista? I'm going to go Hancock by two, um, two percent that is. I just think he's got the incumbent's advantage. And I wrote it down before I started this. I've got Gillis by 1%. It's going to be a squeaker. But remember, everyone can still vote, even if you can't find your You should live in the city of Denver. Even <laughs> if you can't find your ballot, you can go and vote on Tuesday. All right, but now we're out of Denver for a little bit, David. In the wake of the STEM school shooting, Douglas County government officials and the Douglas County School District failed to come to an agreement on how to properly allocate millions of new dollars for school security. Two committees were approved by the commissioners, one to concentrate on physical safety and the other on mental health issues for, dollar, for Douglas County students. Are they going to be able to come to any kind of real agreement that works? Uh, probably not. So for, on, on something that doesn't even need study that's already been offered, the county commissioners offered the school district $3 million as a matching grant to hire more school resource officers. The Douglas County School District has 68,000 students and only 11 school resource officers. This grant would bring the number of school resource officers up to 61, which is still less than a thousand, one per thousand students. And the school board said, no, sorry, we're not, not interested. We've already decided how to spend all our money. And their general attitude is, if you want to give us cash to spend how we want, fine, but we are not interested in any input from other than ourselves, which is to say the, the school board, which is to say the teachers union, uh, which won that election for them. So I, I think it's a, a reckless and imprudent uh, approach they're taking on uh, neglecting school safety. Eric, we've seen division in the Douglas County School District before. How is this going to shake out? I don't know how it shakes out. I don't exactly know who's behaving badly. I think David's analysis is probably 
uh, on the mark. Part of me, maybe naively or uh, myopically, thinks, why couldn't have the school board and the commissioners gone, got together over coffee, over lunch, whatever, and figured this thing out? There is a partisan difference down there. The school board is now, I don't know what the party registration is, but it's very much of a union-friendly, teacher-friendly, democratically-leaning school board. It's a very Republican county, uh, and the county commissioners reflect that composition of the county. So you have that political clash, you have that ideological clash, somewhat vis-a-vis -vis gun issues, um, and, you know, but th these are adults, please, trying to protect kids. And how do we expect the kids to have it together if the adults can't get it together? Krista, can the Douglas County groups start acting like adults? It would be nice. Um, I think the pressure to do the right thing by parents is going to become clearer and clearer. We've got, when, when's an elect when we come up against an election year, parents are going to be looking at this record and saying, what did you do about school safety? And the memory of uh, the shooting and the, and the loss of a heroic young kid uh, will be fresh in their memory. And they, as, as was pointed out, the, the party... The, the, the district is primarily Republican, even though this particular board is is union-friendly uh, and to the left. I could see a, a clean sweep if they don't do the right thing. Susan, I know you were dealing with school issues today. Do you think Douglas County is going to be able to work this out? <laughs> uh, I think what we're seeing is a lot about a lot more than school safety I think it's uh, really about a lot more than the teachers' union. Um, this is what we have in Douglas County, and we've had this for years. It's been an incubator for testing out how far a school district can go um, in terms of public funding for private schools. Okay, And what we see on this board is a quote-unquote reform board that said, no, we're not doing that anymore. And We've got this county commission that is trying to use a big part of this, I think, $10 million um, for brick and mortar for safety, not just for public schools, but for private schools as well. And I think what this boils down to is this perennial tension down there about using public funding for private schools. Um, and so do I think it will blow over anytime soon? No, I think this is... I think Douglas County has been sort of an epicenter for this debate, and no matter what uh, issue percolates up to sort of continue that debate, it's unfortunate that it has to be a school shooting. Well, I'm sure we'll return to Douglas County again, but right now we're going statewide. Governor Polis has been signing a lot of the last bills, including one that will, felon, that will defelonize small, possess, small possessions of heroin, cocaine, and fentanyl, among other illicit drugs. Drug user, users caught with these substances would be facing a misdemeanor charge rather than a felony. The measure aims to save taxpayer money, as the Joint Budget Committee predicts that it can save Colorado anywhere between $8.6 million to $13.7 million in the span of five years. I say it's going fast here. Eric, what do you think? Will we save money? Is this going to help the situation? Oh, I assume the Joint Budget Committee probably knows what they're talking about in terms of the money. I'm guessing I might be in the minority on this table, but I'm going to express some skepticism on this bill. Colorado now seems to be, you know, every 
every other month, whatever, we're either legalizing something or we, we're decriminalizing something, or in the case of this bill, we're defelonizing it, uh, lots of different terminology. I think, A, there's a risk to the whole brand. You know, we are becoming the new Amsterdam uh, here in Colorado. Um, but more importantly than the brand, I don't take branding to be everything. Uh, these are hard drugs we're talking about. We're not talking about magic mushrooms. We're not talking about pot, whether it's in small quantities or large. We're talking about heroin, fentanyl, cocaine of various stripes, etc. And you know, I'm just fine with keeping those as felonies, regardless of the of the volume about it, the volume of it. So. That's my take. I expect to be outvoted around this panel. Well, we'll see. We've got a lot less water than Amsterdam here. <laughs> Are we making a mistake with the defelonizing of these drugs? Well, I actually I agree. I, I think that we are sending the wrong signal that this is the new Amsterdam, that people can come here, do drugs, and that there's not going to be much of a penalty. Uh, obviously, they can get now um, mushrooms and pot and then some of these more lethal substances like fentanyl. What is that? What, what kinds of, of folks are we going to be drawing to this state? And even though we will be offsetting, you know, less jail time is less expense to the state, but when we've got people living on the streets and some of the health issues that come along with that, do we end up heaping more expense on the state and reducing the cost savings? Time will tell. Susan, what do you think? Will, will people get more help if they're not in jail? Uh, I absolutely think people will get more help when if they're not in jail and I also think given the budget situation in this state given the overcrowding in prisons we are about to reopen another prison or there's a desire to do that this is just uh, the practical thing to do we're not talking about large amounts of any of these drugs um, and there's no DA's office in the state that's going to just blow off large amounts of these drugs we're talking about DAs being able to use their discretion on this and uh, keeping people out of uh, this prison system that is not going to help with some of these addictions. It just doesn't. Um, there's no real attempt on the part of the Department of Corrections to uh, uh, be able to do that in the prisons. And so this just is a basic are we going to move forward with these people and help them with their lives? Or are we going to um, incarcerate them with actually no rehabilitation whatsoever um, when we already have a wildly overcrowded prison system. David is the only lawyer at the mm. table tonight. What do you think about the defelonizing of well, these drugs? My, my own view is that the government should not, doesn't have a legitimate interest in felonizing what adults do with their own bodies. Uh, but I would say this is an important, one of the things that's notable about this bill is unlike many things that passed, this wasn't a, a left-wing Democrat cram down. This was very bipartisan. The sponsors were Leslie Herod, a Democrat, Pete Lee, a Democrat, and then in, uh, the Republican lead sponsors in, in each house were the uh, Shane Sandage of Colorado Springs and Vicki Marble of Fort Collins. So, you know, of course, the Democrats were the top sponsors because it's the Democratic controlled, but they were, it was very bipartisan, and that's yet another success for the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition, which is led by its longtime director, Christy Donner, who's one of the most effective people down at the Capitol. 
Well, and that wasn't the only bill that we had this week going before Governor Polis. He signed a bill that will increase the number of locations in Colorado where undocumented residents can obtain a driver's license. The program began in 2014, and supporters say that it would make it easier for workers to drive to work and operate machinery. Meanwhile, the governor also signed House Bill 1234, or 1134, that would prevent law enforcement officials from holding undocumented immigrants solely upon a request from ICE. Christo, what do you think is going to go on with these two bills now? Well, the first one I think is disconcerting. I can't think of any country in the world that makes it very easy for people to live and work there illegally. I think it's a shame that we're doing that here in Colorado. On the other hand, the second, the second bill makes a lot of sense, given that holding people without, uh, you know, without having any kind of adjudication and due process is actually against the Bill of Rights. And so if, if the police, if jails notify ICE while that person is in jail for whatever offense they've given, that's one thing. To hold them on a detainer after the fact is probably a violation of their rights. So I would say the second bill makes sense. Well, and of course, ICE came down on Colorado for that second bill. Susan, what do you see happening? Well, in the first bill, I want to say this was a bill very much supported by Republicans. And the truth is, in our economy in Colorado, where we have farms and ranches that very much rely on uh, these immigrants to drive tractors and to drive trucks, um, this is actually a necessity. This is how we produce food in Colorado. So this is by no means some radical step taken by the governor. The second bill simply codifies what courts have already said, that uh, that counties and states cannot um, do the work of the federal government. And what... what uh, activists, civil rights activists, and immigrant rights activists have been very disappointed with is that the governor has not been willing to take it a step further in saying, no, the the feds cannot deputize um, state law enforcers to go rounding people up. And um, Jared Polis, who really was long an advocate of undocumented immigrants, was one unwilling his first year and first term in office to um, really make that move. And I think we'll uh, be watching closely what he does next session on that issue. David, we're running short on time, but we want your input on this one. Well, as Susan said, the uh, the driver's license thing, which said, expands from three to ten the number of places where illegal aliens can get state government driver's licenses, uh, was certainly supported by agriculture and, and other business. And that's always been the situation. It's why the immig- Republicans were the uh, immigration non-restrictionist party in the 1880s and the Democrats were the restrictionist party, uh, because you uh, low, expand the labor pool, you drive down labor costs. Um, and on the other one, this is the federal and state governments have their own separate sovereignties and can choose to cooperate or not. And we see this on not only on right to arms issues, on, on marijuana, um, and on illegal aliens. Sometimes the right likes it, sometimes the left likes it, but it's in the design of our constitutional system, this uh, degree of state sovereignty. Eric, is Colorado in the right here? I'll try to be really quick. I have no problem with either of these bills that the governor signed, specifically with regard to the driver's license one. 
it's not a matter that if all of a sudden you didn't give them a license, they're not going to be on the roads. And as long as immigrants here are going to be on the roads, I'd much prefer that they be licensed and insured and all the rest. I think it only makes sense and it's only in the public interest, not only in the interest of that immigrant or that immigrant's employer. It's a topic that will keep coming back. But now we go to the disgrace of the week. Beyond my teleprompter trauma, Susan, what's your disgrace? It's a double disgrace. Uh, Gloria Neal works for Mayor Michael Hancock um, in his community outreach office, and it's seemingly on city time. Um, I've received this, these calls, has been trying to pass unsubstantiated rumors on to reporters about uh, Jamie Gillis. And this is not just a disgrace on the administration for allowing this type of thing to happen, and it's not just Gloria among the appointees who are doing it, but a disgrace among the um, press corps for sort of a, seeing this happen and not calling them on it. I don't think the taxpayers of the city pay these appointees to be doing political work on city time. David, in this disgraceful season, what's your disgrace? Excel, which is basically a government monopoly, uh, nominally independent, so public expenses, private profits. Um, after the storm, a tree in my mother's backyard branch broke off and was leaning against a live electrical wire. So she called them to come and fix it, and they said they would. And this went on for four days in a row of, oh, yes, it's been sent to dispatch. We're definitely going to do something. Nobody ever showed up, and so she got a private tremor who did it. And if Excel's not going to send somebody, they should just tell you up front so you can take other action. Eric? Oh, so many possibilities. I, I wasn't on the panel last week, and I know it was talked about, but everything about the, the project at, at Denver International Airport, the DIA project, the cost overrun, the time. We're not measuring the time delay in months. We're measuring it in years and multiple years. The mismanagement of this project, the granting of it to this Spanish firm with very some questionable practices elsewhere around the world, and all of this, if we were going to get a better airport at the end of it, maybe it'd be worth it. We're getting a shopping mall at the end of it. So all of this for a shopping mall. And Krista. You know what, I'm going to swing back at the mayoral, mayoral race, however one says it. Um, I, I think we don't know, just need a... We, okay, I'm the disgrace of the week. <laughs> no, I was. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I, I just think it's, it's getting uglier and we still have time left. In fact, it would be nice to have a, a, a do-over with two new candidates. Nice to think about. Something nice very quickly. You, you, Patty Calhoun, for being a print person reading <coughs> off of a teleprompter fairly well. Uh, congratulations. Oh, well, thank you so much. David. The soft bigotry of low expectations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, judge Richard Mache, United States District Judge who passed away recently. Uh, very well respected all around as a great, solid judge. Good one. Eric. This is real easy. A shout-out to my daughter, Katrina. It's not every day that your daughter is a published author in the New England Journal of Medicine, but it was that day yesterday, and uh, what an accomplishment at a young age as part of a great team at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. That's great. And Krista. I'm going to give it to Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards for signing a fetal heartbeat bill. Um, he basically said goodbye to any presidential aspirations that he has because he's a Democrat and he'll pay for that, but he put children's interests first, and I think he deserves a lot of praise. Well, and that's all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everyone here at CPT12, I'm Patricia Calhoun. Thank you so much for watching, and good night. Thank you.